if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. It is indeed, and a good morning to you once again. Thanks for being with us. We get rolling now at seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Wednesday, the 15th morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord 2020. Appreciate you being with us. Coming up on the program today, we are going to be talking with Paris Denard. Uh, that's just what, a half an hour away, uh, roughly. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk to uh, Paris Denard. At the bottom of the hour, very much looking forward to that conversation about tax day. Today is the 15th of July. Normally it would be the 15th of April we would be talking about tax day and thus uh, your taxes and the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, since, of course, everything was postponed and taxes were kind of given a bit of a, it's not a holiday, but obviously you've been given a lot more time to file your 2019 income taxes. Today is the deadline. July 15th was the extension that they gave us. So uh, Paris Denard is going to be joining us. Paris is um, uh, very well known. He is a senior advisor with the uh, the RNC, as well as being an economist. He is also the advisor of Black Media Affairs. So we're going to talk to Paris Denard about ta- uh, taxes on this tax day, 2020, strange as it sounds, but also about, yes, uh, race relations and the role that they may play on the election coming up or in the election coming up, rather, uh, in November. So that will be at ten or at uh, 9.35. Then at 10.10, Jack Windsor returns, as we are all waiting with bated breath to see what Mike DeWine has in store for us in more of a primetime kind of event. It's not really primetime at 5.30 in the evening, but it's perhaps you know going to reach more people who are not at work as his normal 2 o'clock briefings um, you know, that they may reach. So Mike DeWine is going to have some announcements uh, for the state of Ohio tonight at 5.30-ish. And um, Jack Windsor, who's going to be covering that and who covers all of the DeWine press conferences, will share his thoughts as to what this might be all about. Some are saying he is going to announce a statewide uh, mask mandate. Some are suggesting he is going to announce closures or shutdowns of certain counties, uh, maybe going purple. Some are suggesting that he may shut down the entire state again for a period of two weeks. Some are suggesting he's getting out. He's had enough. Um, Obviously, the lab coat, the walking, mumbling, bumbling lab coat, walked out about a month ago, and maybe he has had enough, too. So those are all just speculative, of course. We're going to ask Jack Windsor what his thoughts are, and uh, we'll try to get a little handle on what's going on in the state of Ohio. 
So Paris Denard and Jack Windsor are the guests today. I want to start this show, however, talking about journalism and the death of journalism. Now, we know for a long time and have known for a long time the quote-unquote MSM. We all talk about it, uh, you know, the mainstream media, and it's far left turn, and now it just censors anything conservative. It slants news stories, and as far as op-eds, opinion pages, oh, my goodness gracious. Um, mainstream journalism, obviously, is, um, you know, it, it's, it's well, it used to be extraordinarily important, I think, to a free republic. Um, the press, the fourth estate, if you will, has a huge role to play. They have abdicated their responsibilities, however, when they have just gone full in with one party. One party. They are partisan, uh, and they c- certainly carry the water for and uh, deliver the mail for, perhaps two, the, uh, two jobs in one, for the Democrat Party. And they've done this for a very long time. Very few journalists have ever gone into the field and found it to be so um, reprehensible and so counterintuitive to what perhaps they were taught in journalism school that they had to get out and they just couldn't do it anymore. But here's one who did. Barry Weiss was a an editor for the New York Times. Uh, she was an opinion editor. She's a columnist and editor uh, who resigned yesterday. And she did so in most spectacular fashion with a huge letter that she put on her webpage in which she explains what happened to the Times and what happened to journalism. The search for truth, she says, has been replaced now by orthodoxy, already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. And obviously, she she is speaking sarcastically, but realistically at the same time. She's speaking of the New York Times and most of the mainstream media, particularly the largest newspapers like the Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, you know, San Francisco Chronicle, L.A. Times, etc., etc. But she literally is explaining, you know, what used to be the job of journalism, which is to find truth and report truth to the people in an unbiased fashion so that those who observe, read, watch, or listen to news coverage uh, can make up their own minds based on simply on facts presented, again, with an unbiased opinion, in an unbiased manner, without an opinion. Uh, and even on the opinion pages, the opinion should be formed based on fact, not on personal orthodoxy or personal ideology. But, as she said here, the search for that truth that used to be prevalent in journalism is gone. The enlightened few are, of course, the liberal editors and uh, managers of these media organizations, primarily newspapers, who share and inform their enlightenment with others, rather than presenting facts and truth and allowing people to make up their own minds. And so that's why she wrote this letter to the New York Times, actually to, uh, I think, everyone in America by way of the New York Times to say this is what is going on and this is what has got to stop. And I feel like it is worth sharing with you. Again, I don't like to read full texts in their entirety, but I think sometimes it is warranted. And I think this is one of those times, especially because of the times, between social media and traditional media, social media and far-left mainstream media, conservatives and conservative viewpoints haven't got a chance. And so much of what we are told and what we are taught and what we are 
uh, educated about by our supposed elites, uh, is going into people's memories and into their their you know their own mental vaults, and it is it is then coming out and in uh, the form of votes in election time. We are what 111 days away from deciding on the future of this country, whether it's going to be capitalist and whether it is going to be free, uh, or whether it is going to be tyranny, and whether or not it is going to be socialist, uh, with uh, elements of Marxism sprinkled into it. We, we, we're 111 days away. And the media is going to play a huge role in deciding the election. There's just no two ways about it. They're going to play a huge role. They are all in with Joe Biden, even though they may not like or believe that Joe Biden is capable or fit for office, but they're all in because he's who emerged from the Democratic mess. Out of, uh, you know... Half the people in the country, if you just suggest that 330 million people in America are divided right down the middle, 50% Republican, 50% Democrat, and I'm not saying that's true, but just for the sake of discussion, you know, with, uh, you know, 175 million or so Democrats, uh, they came up with Joe Biden. <laughs> Joe, Bi- what? Yeah, Joe Biden. Um, and so they're all in, and they are going to impact this election. Make no, uh, make no mistake about that. So what I want to do is I want to read uh, a good segment, or I'm going to try to get the entire thing in, as a matter of fact, because it is, it's glorious in its uh, affirmation of the reality that most of us already knew and lived in, that the press is no longer the fourth estate, no longer concerned with facts, no longer concerned with truth. They're concerned with spreading their ideology and promoting um, their partisanship and promoting uh, the prevailing orthodoxy, if you will, that is uh, existent in the now far-left Democrat Party. So uh, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, since it's 9.16 now, I'm going to take my time out here, though. We'll get our first break, and then I'm going to come back, and I want you to listen to the words of a now former um, New York Times uh, writer and editor, Barry Weiss, whose words I think are extraordinarily important for everyone to hear. That's coming up on AM 1420, The Answer. Now heard through downtown, through Greater Cleveland, on 102.5 FM. It's the Bob France Authority. Okay, it's 920 now. We'll continue on AM 1420, The Answer. Don't forget, we're going to be talking with Paris Denard about Tax Day 2020, which is where we are today, officially. You've got to have your 2019 taxes postmarked and filed by today. Uh, then at uh, Paris Denard, we'll talk to us about that at 935. Then at 1010, what's Mike DeWine going to do at 530 today? Is he going to shut down por- portions of the state? Is he going to issue a statewide mask mandate? He's speaking at 530 to the state, and Jack Windsor will pre- preview that with us coming up at uh, 1010. But right now, this is the letter of resignation from Barry Weiss, former now, write- now former writer and editor with the New York Times. And this really, really underscores the state of journalism in America. Please listen. It is with great sadness that I write to tell you I am resigning from the New York Times. I joined the paper with gratitude and optimism three years ago. I was hired with the goal of bringing in voices that would not otherwise appear in your pages. First-time writers, centrists, conservatives, and others who would not naturally think of the Times as their home. The reason for this effort was clear. The paper's failure to anticipate the outcome of the 2016 election meant that it didn't have a firm grasp of the country it covers. Dean Baquette and others have admitted as much on various occasions. The priority in opinion, meaning the opinion page, was to help redress that critical shortcoming. And I was honored to be a part of that effort. But the lessons that ought to have followed the election, 
lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism, and the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society have not been learned. Instead, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job it is to inform everyone else. Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of the, mores of the platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences, rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. I'm going to pause there and, and, and just applaud that paragraph. <clears throat> the New York Times is crafting its stories and its opinion page based on what they think will be popular on Twitter. What will woke Twitter think of this? What will far-left Twitter think of this? We don't want to be dragged on Twitter, so we have to please Twitter. They think that Twitter represents all of America. And as Barry Weiss is saying, this is not right. Let's continue. My own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi and a racist. I have learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again. Several colleagues perceived, be, perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by coworkers. My work and my character are openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels, where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There, some coworkers insist I need to be rooted out if this company is to be a truly inclusive one, while others post uh, axe emojis next to my name, you know, to axe her. Still, other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action. They never are. There are terms for all of this. Unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. I'm no legal expert, but I know this is wrong. I do not understand how you have allowed this kind of behavior to go on inside your company in full view of the paper's entire staff and public. And I certainly can't square how you and other Times leaders have stood by while simultaneously praising me in private for my courage. Showing up for work as a centrist at an American newspaper should not require bravery. Part of me wishes I, I could say that my experience was unique, but the truth is that intellectual curiosity, let alone risk-taking, is now a liability at the times. Why edit something challenging to our readers or write something bold only to go through the numbing process of making it ideologically kosher when we can assure ourselves of job security and clicks by publishing our 4,000th op-ed arguing that Donald Trump is a unique danger to the country and the world? And so self-censorship has become the norm. What rules that remain at the times are applied with extreme selectivity. If a person's ideology is in keeping with the new orthodoxy, they and their work remain unscrutinized. Unscrutinized. Everyone else lives in fear of the digital Thunderdome. Online venom is excused so long as it is, it is directed at the proper targets. Op-eds that would have easily been published just two years ago 
would now get an editor or a writer in serious trouble if not fired. If a piece is perceived as likely to inspire backlash internally or on social media, the editor or writer avoids pitching it. If she feels strongly enough to suggest it, she is quickly steered to safer ground. And if every now and then she succeeds in getting a piece published that does not explicitly promote progressive causes, it happens only after every line is carefully massaged, negotiated, and caveated. It took the paper only two days and two jobs to say that the Tom Cotton op-ed uh, Cotton- fell short of our standards. We attached an editor's note on a travel story about Jaffa shortly after it was published because it failed to touch on important aspects of Jaffa's makeup and history. But there's still none appended to Cheryl Styad's for a fawning interview with the writer Alice Walker, a proud anti-Semite who believes in lizard Illuminati. The paper of record is more and more the record of those living in a distant galaxy, one whose concerns are profoundly removed from the lives of most people. This is a galaxy in which, to choose just a few recent examples, the Soviet space program was lauded for its diversity. The doxing of teenagers in the name of justice was condoned, and the worst case systems, or excuse me, worst caste systems in human history include the United States along Nazi Germ- alongside Nazi Germany. Even now, I'm confident that most people at the Times do not hold these views, yet they are cowed by those who do. Why? Perhaps because they believe the ultimate goal is righteous. Perhaps because they believe that they will be granted protection if they nod along as the coin of our realm, language, is degraded in service to an ever-shifting laundry list of right causes. Perhaps because there are millions of unemployed people in this country and they feel lucky to have a job in a contracting industry. Or perhaps it is because they they know that nowadays standing up for principle at the paper does not win plaudits. It puts a target on your back. Too wise to post on Slack, they write to me privately about the new McCarthyism that has taken root at the paper of record. And this bodes ill especially for independent-minded young writers and editors paying close attention to what they'll have to do to advance in their careers. Rule 1. Speak your mind at your own peril. Rule two, never risk commissioning a story that goes against the narrative. Rule three, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Eventually, the pub publisher will cave to the mob. The editor will get fired or reassigned, and you'll be hung out to dry. To dry. For those young writers and editors, there is one consolation. As places like the Times and other once great journalistic institutions betray their standards and lose sight of their principles, Americans still hunger for news that is accurate, opinions that are vital, and debate that is sincere. I hear from these people every day. An independent press is not a liberal ideal or a progressive ideal or a democratic ideal. It's an American ideal. You said this a few years ago. I couldn't agree more. America is a great country that deserves a great newspaper. None of this means that some of the most talented journalists in the world still don't labor for this newspaper. They do, which is what makes the illiberal environment especially heartbreaking. I will be, as ever, a dedicated reader of their work. But I can no longer do the work that you brought me here to do, the work that Adolf Oaks once described in that famous 1896 statement, to make the columns of the New York Times a forum for the consideration of all questions of public importance, and to the to that end, invite intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. Oaks' idea is one of the best I've ever encountered, and I've always comforted myself with the notion that the best ideas win out. But ideas cannot win on their own. They need a voice. They need a hearing. Above all, they must be backed by people willing to live by them. Sincerely, Barry. That was the complete resignation letter 
of Barry Weiss to the New York Times, and she wrote it on her uh, blog page so that the world can read it. This is the reality. Don't you ever again condemn Donald J. Trump for calling the press the enemy of the people, the liberal press, the mainstream press. Because now from inside the walls of the New York Times, you hear a lone voice. And, and this isn't the only one, but this is perhaps the best expression of it, but a lone voice saying, we're not doing this right. I am trying to be honest and provide a different shade of opinion as a centrist, and I am called a Nazi and a racist. My story spiked. I am afraid to speak truth. And everybody else that agrees with me is afraid to say so publicly because they will lose their jobs. And in a country with millions of unemployed right now, they can't afford to do that. So what do they do? They go along with the progressive ideology masquerading itself as journalism at the New York Times. It was bold. It was courageous. And it was accurate. And I hope that Barry Weiss is able to start her own publication, not saying start a new newspaper, but find some place where she can continue to speak truth, free of the censorship and the, uh, and the heavy hand of liberal media leaders like the New York Times. We'll take our time out now for news at 9.30. Paris Denard will join us next on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 936 now. We continue on AM 1420. The answer will pivot away from the media for a moment. Uh, although, by the way, little little forward promotion of my next guest, not the one who's coming on now, but at 1010, Jack Windsor is going to be joining us. And Jack Windsor is uh, the subject of some very uh, intense scrutiny from the New York Times, the same New York Times article that Barry Weiss just uh, resigned from with that extraordinarily uh, enlightening letter. Uh, but the New York Times is coming after Jack Windsor. Jack Windsor, of course, is the uh, WMFD reporter in Mansfield who is uh, telling the truth about all of the lies of uh, Governor, Governor Mike DeWine. And the New York Times is coming after him. And Jack will tell us about that at 1010, among other things uh, scheduled for that conversation. But for now, we want to talk about your taxes and about tax day and perhaps about the future of taxation in America. That will, of course, depend on what happens on November 3rd. Joining us now is uh, Paris Denard. Paris is a senior advisor with the RNC of Black. Black Media Affairs, and he can talk to us about a whole, a whole host of these issues. Uh, Paris, good to have you on the program here in Cleveland. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. Thanks for coming on. So let's let's just hit the tax part of this first. Um, you know, it's a little odd to say Tax Day 2020 is on July 15th, but that was the pushback from April 15th due to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and everything else that may have delayed people's ability to pay their taxes or even file. So it's got to be done by today. And the question is, is what will the taxes look like next year at this time if Joe Biden becomes president of the United States? Well, it's an important, first of all, it's important for us to remember that I think it was very responsible, responsible and wise for the administration to move tax day because American people had a lot of struggles and issues in the early parts of COVID-19. There was a lot of confusion. So it was sure. a smart thing to do to move it. And so that's just the responsiveness of, of this administration. If Joe Biden uh, gets his way and, and, and has something called Joe Biden's America, 2021 if he's able to win which i don't think he will do but let's just talk about what it would look like joe biden has already said that the first thing he would do would be to repeal the tax cuts and jobs act 
And we know that that would be an increase for the American people of about $1,200 if he repealed those, those tax cuts. That would also eliminate the child tax credit, mm-hmm. which would impact about 22 million working families. And we know that that would essentially get rid of opportunity zones, which was a major component of the tax cut uh, jobs act that President Trump uh, championed uh, a couple of years ago. And so we, we, we can say without a doubt that just with those two things alone, Joe Biden tax plan means more taxes, increased taxes for the American people and American families. And in a time of coming out of COVID-19 and getting this country and the economy going, the last thing that we need to do and the last thing that we need to have is a significant increase in taxes. Remember, the tax cut also provided for the corporate tax rate to go down, which is good for businesses and bringing jobs back to the country. So under in Joe Biden's America, taxes go up, jobs are going back overseas, and it's not a good environment for American citizens. And that's, that's the reality. And he, you can just go by what Joe Biden says he's going to do. And then he talks about this Green New Deal. Let's just say he's able to get that done. The Green New, the Green New Deal is going to cost jobs and cost uh, increased taxes. And his federal takeover of the health care plan, it's a trillion dollars. He hasn't talked about how he's going to pay for it. And we know when you have these unfunded mandates and these big programs, these government programs, the taxpayer always pays for it. So Joe Biden's America is not a good America for the taxpayer and for the economy and for small business owners and for American families. We are talking with Paris Denard. He's a senior advisor with the RNC. Today is Tax Day 2020. You've got to get your taxes filed by the end of the day today. And I agree with you, by the way, Paris. It was certainly a wise move uh, by the Trump administration uh, and through the IRS to say, hey, we're going to push all of this back. People are not in a position to handle uh, their taxes right now uh, during the middle of the pandemic. So many people were losing their jobs by April 15th and uh, unable to pay, etc. So I agree with you. And um, why do you think it is? that Joe Biden would be announcing three, four months before the actual election that if I am elected, I will raise your... It seems so bizarre to make a public statement. I will raise your taxes. I will raise the corporate tax rate. I will raise the capital gains taxes. uh, I will raise uh, the death tax, I think, uh, you know, is is some of what he and Mm -hmm. his people are saying, too. Why would he make those announcements uh, before the election, three months before the election? Well, it's, it's, it's twofold. One, it's that, that Joe Biden uh, thinks and knows that American people have short m- memory spans. And so if he announces it months ahead of time, then he can, then by the time he thinks, by the time people go to the polls, uh, they won't remember that he said that. But, but the, the second point of that is, you, is the point of why Joe Biden would even announce that to begin with. It's because Joe Biden is being ruled, advised, and pushed by the radical left of his party. And so when you have Bernie Sanders writing economic policy and Elizabeth Warren, part of this, and AOC and Nancy Pelosi, it's a a radical liberal dream to be able to, like he said, transform America. And that's what they're trying to do. And so he's being pushed and forced to talk about these things because the radical left thinks that this is good. They think the Green New Deal is good. They think they're funding America uh, police department is a good thing. They think that keeping the economy closed and schools uh, shut down are good things. And so he's pushed, they, he's being pushed to do these things 
But the campaign, I'm sure, is saying, let's get it out there now, appease the radical left, and hope the American people forget. But they're not going to forget. <laughs> some people, Pear, some people have suggested that what he is doing is is essentially trying to sandbag the stock stock market and uh, and hurt it even worse over the course of the next three months to stop President Trump from being able to show any positive momentum in the economy. And a guy who's leading by double digit in numerous polls, uh, double digits in numerous polls, saying if I win, I'm going to raise your taxes, sends a lot of people scurrying to sell off because they feel like you know the market is going to be hurt by this. And and that maybe the worse he can make the economy during the last three months, the less uh, uh, people will trust Donald Trump to get it back up again. Do you think there's anything to that? Well, I think there's a lot to that. When you look at the fact that you have leading Democrats like Joe Biden who are not pushing for the economy to open, pushing for schools to open, and are uh, at sitting idly by as American cities are literally under siege because of violence and crime and looting and rioting. Uh, they do this because they know that if they can drive down the economy, keep it closed, keep it bad, drive down the stock market, it will be bad for uh, the economy, it will be bad for the American people, and they will want to take it out on someone. And they think that they're going to take it out on the, in the ballot box and vote uh, Donald Trump out. That's what their goal is. And that's sinister. That's disgusting. At at some point, we have to put politics aside and say for the good of the American people, for families, single mothers, grandchildren, we need to fight to do the very best for them. I don't care who wins the election. I want to make sure that the American people are first. That's what the president is. He's saying, I'm going to put America first. If you don't like my policies, if you don't like what I'm doing, Oh, that's fine. But I'm still going to do what's best for the American people on trade deals like USMCA and get real, get rid of NAFTA. I'm going to get full out of the Paris Climate Accord. I'm going to get rid of individual mandates. Some Democrats and liberals in Congress may like it. Some political pundits and pollsters and, and politicians on the PR cable news may like it. But I am more, the president is more concerned about doing the right thing for the American people, American families and America's children than doing the political thing to to win elections. And that's the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We are talking with Paris Denard. He is a senior advisor uh, for the RNC or with the RNC, and uh, specifically with black media affairs. As an African-American, I want to ask you about the uh, ongoing racial, we can't even call it tensions now, Paris. I mean, we're talking about riots over race in the streets. Uh, Obviously, George Floyd's uh, terrible death, which no one, I still haven't found a single person in America uh, publicly on social media or traditional media or even in private conversations say that there was... uh, uh, that something wasn't horribly wrong with the murder of George Floyd. But having said mm-hmm. all of that, we're six weeks into this now since that happened, and the riots and the um, uh, racial tensions have been ratcheted up to maybe you know the highest they've ever been since the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Um, what is the end game here with Black Lives Matter as an African American and as the uh, senior advisor for Black Media Affairs with the RNC, Paris? You are in a unique position to offer this. What is the end game for Black Lives Matters and where we are right now? Well, it's, I, I believe a lot of it is is, is purpose. Uh, the rioting, the looting, the violence, uh, the the anarchy that we see uh, is on purpose. It goes back to your earlier point of 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 
you know, people were so concerned about Russia and, 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 and how they were trying to meddle in the election and, and, and trying to sow seeds of discord, remember? I mean, they, they, they were planting these racially charged ads on Facebook and stuff to, to, to try to create a race war. Well, people stopped looking to Russia to do that. You have the DNC doing that. You have these Democrat leaders doing that. You have Black Lives Matter organization doing that. People today want action and justice, and they want to be heard. And you know what? President Trump provided that action, and he did that through the executive order for safe policing and safe communities. And you know what? Senator Tim Scott also tried to put forth something that was responsive, that was seeking justice and getting action with his Justice Act. But, but guess what happened? Dick Durbin, the senator from, from uh, uh, Illinois, called it a token process, a direct assault, a racist insult to Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican senator in the United States Senate. And uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, said that Republicans were trying to uh, 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 get away with murder, talking about George Floyd. This is where we are. They refuse to let the Justice Act go forward because they are not really serious about justice. They're not serious about action. And so when you have corporations supporting Black Lives Matter organizations, the question is, where's the money going? Where's the transparency? And what are all these things that are happening have anything to do about justice, access to capital, better schools, doing anything to prevent the murders of these children that we see in Chicago every single day uh, in, in double digits every weekend? That is what is really at stake, but that's not what you see out of this liberal leadership. That's not what you see out of Black Lives Matter organization. It's not what you see by anybody who is sitting there saying, defund the police, because when you defund the police, when you cry, have that as your mantra, you are actually hurting the very communities, the very people, the very neighborhoods that need the most protection and help and safety that comes from having law enforcement there that is there to protect them and serve them and to keep their communities and their families safe. There's a reasonable expectation to know that when your child walks out and goes to the playground or goes to school, if the schools are allowed to open, that they should return home safely and not get shot. And that is the reality that many urban families face. But because when you have things like defunding the police and moving resources away from police officers and, 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 and demonizing all police, black, white, Hispanic, men and women, you hurt the very communities that they're out to protect. So I don't know where the end game is in terms of justice and action because the Democrats and these leftist organizations don't seem to be caring about black lives. They're caring more about black folks and stoking uh, the the racial fears and Mm -hmm. animosity uh, in America. And that's the sad thing. And in advancing Marxist uh, Marxism, and, and that is, of course, what uh, two of the founders of Black Lives Matter, the organization, have said that they are trained Marxists, and they, are, they have a yeah, they have a goal of essentially um, destroying the United States uh, system of capitalism and our and our electoral systems, uh, among other things, for the purposes of reframing and reshaping this country. It's not about saving Black lives; it is a political dissident uh, movement. And let me ask you the last thing before you go, Paris Denard. Uh, have you seen the movie Uncle Tom yet that my colleague uh, uh, Larry Elder uh, made? I haven't, but I've I've heard nothing but good reviews, and know many yeah. of the people that are in it, and I and I and I, and I think that it's, I'm glad to see uh, movies like that are out there, um, and 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 because we need to fight back and push back 
Yeah, it's uh, extraordinary, the movie, and listening to the stories of, of 20 different African-American conservatives and what, you know, the difficulties that they've faced in their personal lives and their professional lives by, by actually having a different opinion, a dissenting opinion from the vast majority of black Democrat uh, opinion in which uh, African-Americans essentially rubber stamp everything Democrats do and vote for them in every election in extraordinary numbers. And, and it's really an amazing look at how they deal with it. And you are a conservative African-American. You could have been one of those interviewed in the in the uh, documentary by Larry Elder. So briefly, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with the name calling and the accusations that you are, you're a race traitor? I'm sure you've heard those kinds of things and maybe the Uncle Tom name yeah. itself and others. How do you deal? And worse, I remember what my grandmother told me and my beloved grandfather, who was my hero, my papa told me, they said, remember who you are and whose you are. I'm made in the image of God and I, and I am a God's child and I come from a strong, powerful, wonderful loving Christian home, black family that loves and supports me. I have friends that do that. So I know what I believe, but I more importantly know why I believe it. And when I advocate for my party, my grandfather, who's a Democrat his whole life, told me, before one of the last conversations we had before he passed, he said, Paris, I don't like your president and I don't like your party. He said, but I love you and I love you in the Republican Party. So stay in the Republican Party and keep fighting in that for our people. And that's exactly what I'm doing. So I'm not, I'm not moved by the uh, ignorant claims from the, the, the mob on the left or, or black liberals who come after me because I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I know who I am and who I serve. You're a very fortunate man to have been so well raised. Uh, it's great advice that you got and great leadership that you got from uh, from your papa and your family, and uh, it obviously is showing in your in your professional career. Uh, Paris Denard, uh, senior advisor of the RNC, thanks so much for your thoughts on the tax situation and the racial situation. We appreciate it, and hopefully we can talk again. I really hope we do. Thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you, sir. God bless. That's Paris Denard on AM 1420, The Answer. It's 9.52. We'll take a quick time out here. Maybe squeeze a call in or two before the top of the hour. Jack Windsor, after the top of the hour, with a preview of Mike DeWine's address tonight to the state of Ohio. That's coming up. All right, it is uh, 9.57. Thanks for being with us on AM 1420, The Answer. So I was asking uh, I was asking Paris Denard about Uncle Tom, the movie. If you have not yet seen it, and he had not either, you really, really need to. And you can do so at UncleTom.com. And you can save 20% on uh, the price of that film with the promo code Cleveland. So this is just, you know, this is, the, this is the thing that leftist Democrats don't want you to see. The stars of the movie, as I said to uh, Paris Denard, are the people they don't want you to hear from. Uh, African-American conservatives. Their stories will shock you. Their journeys will amaze you. Their courage will challenge you. It really is. I, I praise Paris Denard, as I said. It's great. You know, it takes, takes a lot of courage to be an outspoken black conservative in America today. And uh, you'll understand more when you watch the movie, UncleTom.com. Buy it on pay-per-view and save uh, 20% with the promo code Cleveland, UncleTom.com, if you have uh, the courage to uh, to seek the truth. Let's go to the phones here real quick for the uh, top of the hour. John is in Chardon on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, John, go ahead. Hey, morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, yesterday, the State Board of Education was supposed to rule on a uh, yeah. bill that would make mandatory teaching of the 1619 start of our country. Well, almost, have, have almost, almost. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I did. I did. Um, 
they they discussed and debated on that for hours and hours and hours last night. They didn't uh, actually get a vote on it until after 11.30 p.m., I believe. Uh, they were it went 14 straight hours on discussing all of the proposals, uh, and uh, especially number 20, which, 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 and this is why I said almost, John, it didn't specifically say we are going to introduce the 1619 curriculum. Uh, it set the table for it. It set the table for essentially greenlighting all of the Black Lives Matter demands on what happens in schools and how uh, what is taught. Uh, so the 1619 project from the New York Times, that fictitious uh, nonsense that is indeed uh, invading and pervading in uh, curriculum all over the country, is coming to Ohio because they voted on it late last night and it passed. Um, I do know that some members of the Board of Education tried very hard to get them to table this until September so that they can bring in more experts to discuss race relations and the role of race in education in the state of Ohio and, quite frankly, around the country. Uh, but uh, they were unable. They did not have the votes to table it, and they did not have the votes to stop it. So the motion or the rule number 20 uh, in that proposal was passed late last night after 11.30 p.m. We'll have a lot more to say about that in coming days, I promise you, because it is easily the most dangerous curriculum ever presented to uh, Ohio school children. It is just, it is, it is hard to overstate how important that is. Um, we're going to get our news now at 10 o'clock, and then we're going to have Jack Windsor previewing Mike DeWine tonight, coming up on AM 1420, The Answer. This is AM 1420, The Answer, WHK, W273, DG, Cleveland, a service of...